I think what we're being offered with digital technologies is a second chance, is a bit, an ability to create some incredible cultural objects that can allow everybody to engage in a much more equal way. And we can't detach that from the fact that you need access to the screens and so forth to do that, but it's a lot more egalitarian. But we, we mustn't continue to expect of the, the, the cultural producers to play by the, the old rules. Otherwise, the whole thing's just not going to work. Questions of ownership or questions of copyright. And that raises, of course, the very real question about artistic remuneration, if we're going to have a complete liberation of information and so on. And all of that has come to the fore lately around AI-made art, which can't just conjure things up from nowhere, but has cannibalized through its training um, previous artists' work. For our last episode of Talking Culture, we spoke to two artists who had an affinity with objects. As we meandered our way through topics such as restitution, cultural heritage, and the agency of objects, we also reflected on the idea of aura and questioned whether the aura of an object can be lost if it is digitized. One of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century who coined this notion of aura was Walter Benjamin. He belonged to the Frankfurt School that criticised capitalism and examined the failure of Marxist revolutionary social change. He was most fascinated in 19th century modernity in the state of the modern world, mass transportation, factory work and the dissemination of capitalism. He believed that we needed to take a closer look at mass culture, which includes photography and film, in a much more theoretical way to understand what is actually going on in society. This school of thought also upheld that the more media, education or political consumption of an individual, the less likely people would be able to understand the conditions of their own oppression. In 1935, he wrote an essay called The Work of Art in the Age of Its Mechanical Reproduction, often considered one of his boldest pieces in which he sets out his ideas on the media and culture in general, whilst retaining an edge that has managed to get under the skin of almost everyone who has read it. When he wrote this piece, he was writing in the age of what he describes as mechanical reproducibility, which he is generally referring to as a function of photography. The important idea being that photographs create the possibility of reproducing an image of the world, an object, a painting, or even a person, and those photographs can be repeated so many times that we rarely value the original. Right up until today, there are still plenty of academics and curators who are enmeshed with this thinking, and Benjamin's essay continues to take centre stage in debates on mass culture and digitisation of culture, whether that be machine translation or the replications of artwork. A quote that best encapsulates this notion of aura reads, To follow with the eye a mountain range on the horizon or a branch that casts its shadow on the beholder is to breathe the aura of those mountains of that branch. In other words, no matter how precise the image on a postcard is of that mountain range, there is an element of degradation of that aura as you are not standing there in front of the mountain itself and experiencing it in that moment in time. 
Now, relating this back to replicas or famous artworks, Benjamin argues that even if it is the most perfect replica, it still loses its aura and it's still not exactly the same. So when you go to see the Mona Lisa at the Louvre in Paris, you are actually urged to stand there and experience the painting, not just to pull out your mobile, take a few pictures, but really be with it. And the reasoning behind that is the aura. You're listening to Talking Culture, a futurist podcast. Through fascinating interviews with thinkers and doers in the arts and culture sector, this show investigates how creative fields are emerging from the tumultuous present into the future. From the Goethe Institute London, this is a podcast about the critical role and value that arts and culture have in our societies. I'm your host, Lucy Rowan. Today we are joined by Esther Leslie and Louis Porter to unpick the mind of Walter Benjamin and reflect on some of the ideas that he writes about in the work of art in the age of its technological reproducibility. Our first guest, Professor of Political Aesthetics at Burbick University, is Esther Leslie. Her interests lie in the poetics of science and the politics of technologies. Her current work focuses on turbid media and the aesthetics of turbulence. Her books include various studies and translations of Walter Benjamin, as well as Hollywood Flatlands, Animation, Critical Theory and the Avant-Garde, which was published in 2002, and Synthetic Worlds, Nature, Art and the Chemical Industry, published in 2005. Her more recent works and writings have been alongside Melanie Jackson on the biopolitical economy of dairy. And our second guest for today is Louis Porter, who is a London-based artist, photographer, researcher and educator in the photographic processes. His work focuses on the circulation and recirculation of images, texts, ideas and the technologies of reproduction that enable this. And printed matter are an important part of his practice via his own imprint, 20 Shelves, independent publishers and as a member of the Artist Books Cooperative. In October 2021, Louis published a translation of the artwork in the age of its technical reproducibility, produced by photographing Walter Benjamin's essay Das Kunstwerk im Zeitalter seiner technischen Reproduzierbarkeit, as it appeared in the 1950-55 publication Schriften. The images were subsequently processed using optical character recognition software, and the resulting image readable text converted to English using Microsoft translation services. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Talking Culture podcast. I'd like to start today by thanking our two guests. We have Louis Porter and Esther Leslie joining us today. So welcome both of you and thank you for your time. I'm going to get started with you, Louis. In uh, 2021, you translated uh, Walter Benjamin's Uh, Probably his most notable piece, uh, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. What led you to translate this piece? Um, So this piece is actually the second in a a loose series of books that I'm working on, which looks at the way we reproduce a text might change the way we then subsequently read it or understand it and engage with it and so the first one 
uh, I commissioned a handwriting specialist to very beautifully transcribe George Orwell's why, essay, Why I Write, I think on the day after he entered the public domain. So I quite like these sort of little playful notions. And when I was thinking of what to do as a second book, I'd been reading a lot in the news and, and just generally thinking a lot about machine translation. So computer-aided translation or uh, translation entirely done by a computer. And there'd been discussion about the possibility, as there so often is with these things, at what point will that potentially replace uh, a human translator so that a text would be something we couldn't distinguish between whether or not it was done by an automated process or a human being. And as as I was reading about that, and I started actually reading some of Benjamin's work on translation, and the idea sort of popped into my head, oh, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll uh, take some of his work, his work on translation and translate that. Uh, they're not my favorite text, to be honest with you, those ones. And also, as I was doing that, I realized, of course, I can include photography in that process. And that's something that's very central to my work is, is, is optics and photographic reproduction. And of course, it was just obvious the text that I should do. So that's essentially what, what gave me the idea was, was that this, this is the obvious text to translate if you're going to do it with a camera. So it sort of started from that. Yeah, great. And, you know, you mentioned there about working with optics and doing that. So could you walk us through your process from mm. preparation to executing and finally publishing? And um, could you also talk a little bit about the challenges that you encountered along the way? Yeah, so the process that I used uh, was identical, really, to what would be used by a museum or a library. And like most artists, I've I've done other things for a, for a living, and on the side, I, I do do museum work. So I did actually have access to the exactly the same facilities. So the process was I took a 1955 copy of uh, the essay that was in the original German, and ran it through a museum studio process, and and it's relatively straightforward although of course the technology is is very considered and large and um and precise but the the book is placed in something called a book scanner which is specifically designed to ergonomically open and hold open the pages of a book and it, it's photographed both pages with two cameras the image information the image data is then sent through to a piece of software which uses optical character recognition or OCR and that's essentially a process where uh, an algorithm has been trained with lots of examples of text to recognize handwritten and also printed text and convert that to something that's machine readable. And then that is in turn turned into a Word document. And from there, that was I used Microsoft Translate because that was the simple, easiest way to, to translate that. And then I'm given a big block of text, which I then... Uh, laid out in desktop publishing software and so from uh, from my perspective up until the point when I received the translated text I was essentially a sort of functionary in the process I was pushing buttons and pulling levers so I wouldn't necessarily say that that it was difficult up until that point and really the difficulty was uh, laying that text out which took quite some time. I can imagine and you know just thinking about translation in general, whilst, you know, German is very similar, translating is always a bit difficult because obviously in English you have so much more vocabulary than you do have in German. Did you have any mm. issues there particularly with um, kind of finding the right it, words? It tends to, I 
what I wanted to do was essentially, because I'm essentially trying to capture the flaws of the translation process, the the challenges that I was really facing was was trying not to intervene in its mistakes. I think one of the things I was quite interested in is that this process would capture the machine's mistakes and errors so that it's a, uh, in particular, from what I can tell, it's, it's had real issues with grammar. Occasionally, uh, I found it quite interesting how it would translate the text. Um, but I tried to take the lightest hand possible. And in an ideal world, I would never have changed anything. I would love to have just presented it as it was. Mm-hmm. And I do tend to try to work Unlike, say, some artists who who tend to work on conceptual projects like myself, I do quite like the end result to look nice. Uh, I'm a bit traditional in that respect. So I did make the very occasional tweak where I really only with formatting issues to, to make the text appear like a normal text. I thought that was very important that it had that that veneer of a nicely laid out text. And if you look at the book in your hand, it's the, all the paper is well chosen and so forth. So the tweaks that I made were as limited as possible. Uh, so if you, uh, if you decide to actually try and read it, um, and I've had to read it myself a couple of times, it's a very strange uh, experience. But um, in a sense, you could argue it's a text that doesn't need to be read in its form. Um, it, it's, it's more of a sort of a, a concept piece. Um, it's difficult to, to edit because you're reading this, this sometimes very lucid translation uh, and sometimes it, it sort of verges into nonsensical. Yeah, I mean, the, the book itself, it has that sort of nice like ladybird kind of uh, feel to it, you know, like the very classical books. And I think I think that along with the concept itself definitely makes it nice. So well done for adding those finishing touches there. And Esther, I'm going to come on to you um, now. So for those who aren't too familiar with the philosophy of Walter Benjamin, in particular, in this piece, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, uh, could you explain what his ideas are around, you know, the replication of artworks, um, and in particular, this idea of aura? Yeah, it's been such an influential text since it was written in the mid 1930s and there are at least three german language versions of it and and he wrote a version in french and and so what is the the master text of it all is is also a whole story because there were pressures on him to to change things and and to edit in certain ways but there are core concepts that run through all of the versions. And essentially, Benjamin is thinking about what happens to a traditional concept of art once we have the capacity to um, reproduce it or to produce visual materials and other types of materials technologically. So what he does within it is give us a whole history of of human relationships to what we might call art but he begins with the kind of ritual objects and objects of veneration that make sense within ritual um, contexts uh, which are, are not seen by many people only the select few so they are very distant and then there's a whole period he talks about when um what we might understand to be the traditional concept of art takes off, which is art, which is produced first for people who commissioned it, who uh, wanted 
paintings of themselves or paintings to bolster their reputations. Eventually, these things become publicly seen in dedicated exhibitions and galleries. More people see those things, but not everybody feels emboldened to go into a gallery or invited in. But those who do go in stand and contemplate works of art, oil paintings, sculptures. They cannot touch them. There's a kind of distance, but it's a bit less of a distance than art perhaps produced in a more uh, sealed off um, context. Uh, there, there's a certain kind of engagement with it. But then art um, comes along, which is much closer to us. Uh, photography, film, uh, it's escaped from the gallery and you might encounter mechanically reproduced or technically reproduced artworks, sound works and so on in your home, in magazines, on the street, in advertisements, um, in, in the cinema. And in Benjamin's sort of concept, that in a sense has brought art closer to people. It's bridged a, a a distance. You can pick up a, a photograph, pick up a postcard, uh, walk into a cinema and shout while a film is happening. And, you know, that that's just all part of a, a popular culture of, of image um, and sound uh, absorption. And once that comes along, I think he thinks that makes us understand retrospectively what the two earlier art forms possessed, which is this thing he calls aura, which essentially means uh, a separation between viewer and artwork. And that might be a physical separation, which means you can't breach it and, and touch this thing, or more of a conceptual separation that this thing I'm looking at was made by an artist who is so much greater than me, who is divinely appointed, as might be in a concept of art in in some period or, or simply a genius in in some way and that all is um makes this art have this aura have a kind of halo around it the art and the artist has a kind of halo of untouchability and unbroachability around it but one of the ways in which benjamin defines this aura which is a a very fuzzy concept i mean it's a concept about a kind of fuzz that hangs around earlier art forms, uh, but it is itself quite fuzzy and people have debated it for a long, long time. But one of the things he says that defines aura is an artwork's location in um, time and, and um, space. So it exists in one place. We make a pilgrimage to see particular works of art in their location. And that work of art is made at a particular time and, and that time in a sense is carried through with the art on the art in 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 the patina um that develops on surfaces but also it's part of a life world into which that work of art emerges and makes sense and what happens in an age of mechanical reproducibility is that the art or the the product or the cultural creation is dislodged from any one particular place photography film what is the original there it is designed to be multiple um and 
you can print off a photograph at, at any moment in time. And of course, we can argue about negatives and, you know, uh, sort of originary sort of elements of photography. But as a kind of optical system, it's it, it the products of it can be made at any moment. So it's dislodged from a particular location in a historical moment. I mean, it transports a particular historical moment into the future and does all sorts of other things with time. But that isn't, um, for Benjamin, something that then exudes what he calls an aura or an auratic presence necessarily. Okay, thank you. That was a fantastic explanation, really detailed. Talking about this aura and talking about this temporality of, you know, artwork, considering that this piece was written almost 100 years ago, is the aura or the essence of this essay lost just because we are so much further along in the evolution of the timeline of mechanical reproduction? And how, how can we work to understand this essay in modern day society? I think what's remarkable is the extent to which the essay continues to be relevant or continues to represent a, a set of thoughts about you know whether whether it's important to have authenticity in an artwork because you know the mark of the artist the signature is is the mark of authenticity um do does that matter now in an age when everyone's talking about nfts or digitally reproduced art and um, you know, art that's sort of uh, made in, in different sort of technological ways, you know, it does it, he still raises the question about the relationship, I suppose, of authenticity and uh, artistic making to objects. So I think that that element doesn't go away. Um, and I, I think people do, I mean, as, as with Louis's machinic translation of the essay which brings it right up against this question of what sort of uh an agency is contained within the machine what is the relationship between machinic reproduction and the input of the artist in an age when many artists are using digital tools and other tools in order to make their artwork so you know, I, I think those questions continue. He opened up something that really hasn't been closed off yet. And Louis, when you think about your own artwork and, you know, thinking about this philosophy of Walter Benjamin, particularly in relation to aura, mm. do you think this is telling in your own work? Yeah, I, I, I find the... Um, I think reading and rereading the essay, which I've, I've done over a number of years, uh, you, you tend to relate your current position of thinking to, to his. And I, and I think in a way, what he sort of projects in the, the essay is actually an unfolding um, sort of series of arguments and ideas. Like I think the process that he's, he's laying out isn't something that's concluded. So I, when I look at my own work next to it, I, I can always position it within this, almost this sort of timeline of thought erupting from it. And I think there's there's always elements that you can grab on with it and and as Esther was saying there's a fuzziness to the idea of of the aura which is really interesting and because it's hard to to sort of grasp it it shifts and changes a lot and uh for me for example there's a, there's an element where he talks about the desire 
of the uh, the contemporary masses wanting to forever sort of bring things closer through these technologies and this this sort of sense of this proximity I see uh, for a lot of my work is very interested in um, not just archives but also modern forms of archiving like the newspapers and things this crops up in my work a lot and I look at for example the news media and if we look at the way that uh, that develops and we think about it in terms of proximity you know you have this original idea of correspondence working in foreign climates sending in uh, weekly updates or monthly updates and then eventually the the technology shifts and allows that to happen more frequently then television allows us to have live news then we have the web allows us to have citizen journalism and then of course the technology is such that you you have people live streaming uh, shooters in in uh, the united states mass shooters are actually live streaming the event and so there's this sense of incredible collision proximity occurring and i think if you read these events through uh, benjamin's um uh, lens uh, uh, then interesting things happen and so it's uh, it's one of these texts, which is a strange, uh, almost mystical text, which wherever you put it, it, it resonates. Uh, and I think it produces ideas. So for me, it's incredibly valid uh, and, and uh, relevant today. I think with with the current kind of interest also among some artists around sort of social, socially engaged practice and the relationship between art and politics and whether there is a relationship and questions of um, form and questions of whether art is an elite practice or whether art is mm. a means for uh, engaging in sort of social, ethical, political debate. People return again and again to this last part of Walter Benjamin's essay, where which he calls the epilogue, where he mm coins this phrase um you know around a, a relationship between aesthetics and politics and he's thinking about the nazis because he's writing it at a time when the you know the nazis have begun to name modern art degenerate art but they have also sort of produced hitler as a as a kind of charismatic artwork in himself in in you know himself and so Benjamin talks about how you know the fascists have um, aestheticized politics and communism to which he was a critical adherent needs to respond by politicizing art and then that opens a whole question what does that mean the photo montage practice of John Hartfield or the work of Bertolt Brecht and so on uh, that's open questions which I think contemporary artists who have a sort of social commitment still wrestle with and are still interested in and it was very noticeable I think when Trump came back into power in the US how people also began to think about the other side of the equation again about the aestheticization of politics and the use of social media as an adjunct of political discourse and so on. So I think in those ways, it continues to have a lot of relevance. I would ask you a little bit more on sort of when we're thinking about literary translation and thinking about more abstract texts, for example, you know, poetry or translating philosophy, mm. when you were, you know, studying Walter Benjamin yourself, and I assume maybe, you know, having those some of those texts translated from German into English and reading them in a second language the idea springs to mind of you know this term lost in translation from like an academic practice when you're kind of reading these texts 
how can we work to kind of counter or better understand or reach that true meaning of uh, philosophers or poets mm. when we're doing mm. it in a second language? I think it's so interesting the ways in which many people access critical theory, not just Benjamin or Adorno, Krakauer, um, all of the French thinkers, so much um, in get through second languages. But I think in many ways it's Benjamin him himself who does provide the most interesting reflections on that in his task of the translator essay, which is an early essay from 1921, and in some ways quite enigmatic but interestingly itself you know there have been two main translations from the German into English and one main French translation and one of the English translations is far more careful because it really adheres to the ways in which Benjamin um, distributes his vocabulary it's um, you know a, a superior translation but it also because it thinks about what Benjamin is trying to say in that essay, which is quite controversial things in a, in a way, or quite counterintuitive things. Like Benjamin says, you know, no poem, no text is written for the reader. Um, and he also says that there's no, um, a kind of, it's a fantasy to think that one can mirror a text by choosing precisely the right words in a second language, because that's not how translation works. It, it, a, a translation is always going to bring a, a text or a literary piece into another language that has a whole other set of connotations. He talks about the way in which, you know, for a, for a French person, the word pain is not the same as brought for a German person, you know, that those have all sorts of other connotations in their home languages, but you have an interesting opportunity within translation to almost sort of rip apart language, open up those gaps. So in many ways, you know, he loves Hölderlin's very sort of literal and almost poor translation of Sophocles because it sort of pulls, it, it emphasizes the inadequacies of translation, the gap between um, one, one context and another. Um, and he sort of also thinks that in some ways one shouldn't trans, one isn't trying to reconstruct the context of a piece when one translates it, but one's thinking about what he calls and coins pretty much himself, this word Fortleben, which has been much discussed, this idea of, it has been sort of wrongly translated as afterlife, but it's a sort of continuing life, a kind of survival, but not quite the same as survival. It's a sort of endurance of the piece through time. Um, some people, he says, become famous and, and therefore their works are translated, but they're not sort of mirrored in the present they are translated or carried into a present and and the best translations will update in a sense and and will um contemporize which is very much what he did when he translated Baudelaire he was really critical of Stefan Georgas rather romantic translations and did his own much more modernistic translations to bring them into the life world of him 
and his friends in the youth movement in Germany, you know, around the time of the First World War, sort of bringing out their shocking um, modernity in that context. So I think, you know, the answer, what is a good translation is quite an interesting one if you look at it through through Benjamin's lens and and accept you know a, a certain kind of um, historicity I suppose or what is important about the ongoing existence of a piece is how it meets the present which you know is precisely what might be raised by the question of machinic translation in, in certain ways as well how, how does that feed into uh, our AI dominated present how does that talk to it it's funny when we think about machine uh, translation in 2021 we had this hackathon at the Goethe Institute in London where people came along and we kind of gave them the challenge of thinking up a plugin or a website that we could combat bias in machine translation particularly to do with gender and racial bias mm. and that was one of the things I was going to kind of move on to with you, Louis, you know, when you were doing the machine translation mm. yourself. Were there sort of any biases that were coming up in the language or unpredictability, you know, with machine translation? Yeah, it, it tended to uh, introduce gender into places where it wasn't before. There was an interesting play with gender. Biases is a difficult one because I think the nature of the text, uh, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were there, uh, it did occasionally, what it would do is very occasionally it would surprise with a, um, an unusual uh, turn of phrase. I, I, I did actually, I made a point, I thought that I'd get asked, so I, I did actually quickly, just as I was uh, coming down, I earmarked something. Uh, so I think it's uh, in the 13th section. Uh, let me have a look. Um, and he's essentially talking, introducing I, I, the idea of a sort of uh, optical unconscious, so that when we... Uh, that what cameras and uh, devices like this can introduce is entirely new ways of seeing things. So a good example is maybe, um, I think the classic is like uh, Maybridge, uh, uh, who photographed uh, uh, horses and humans in motion. We, we can see how the body works in space by freezing it with the technology. And it's something that we can't do with our own uh, uh, optical systems, as it were. Uh, so he, he mentions this is in the... Um, uh, illuminations that I, uh, uh, I have a copy of. So here the camera intervenes with the resources of its lowerings and liftings, its interruptions and isolations, its extensions and accelerations, its enlargements and reductions. Okay, so here's uh, the machine translation courtesy of Microsoft. Same sentence. Here the camera intervenes with its aids, its falling and rising, its interruption and isolating, its stretching and rafting of the drain, its enlarging and its reduction. And I, for me, occasionally when you get expressions like rafting of the drain inserted in this way, uh, would uh, be, because I know what it's, it's trying to say, it, there's an interesting juxtaposition, almost like a sort of a shock value. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I'm not entirely sure whether or not that's a case of an error in the character recognition or the translation. And it's worth bearing in mind that there's not just one process occurring with this. We're translating the the physical book uh, into um, uh, 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 bits and bytes of a uh, of a digital file, which is a raw file that a human eye can never perceive. So you always have to remember these digital objects. We need screens and software uh, and so forth to see these things in the first place, and then we translate them with the with another machine. So so you it's like layers of an onion. Um, so 
whether or not there's bias in it or whether or not is errors of, of, of the movement of information, it was difficult to tell. But I, I did notice a lot of uh, 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 interesting uses of gender. And of course, it would get tense wrong all the time, I found, which is quite, dis it's quite a, a disorientating text to read because um, it, it makes just enough sense to confuse you kind of like leads me on to the topic of thinking about the digitization of culture in particular in art um, nowadays. So, you know, we're looking at, at the moment, this sort of very mass style of showing artworks. For example, we've got the David Hockney Bigger and Closer show on at the moment in uh, King's Cross. The aim is to get more people excited about art or interested in art. And I think there are some positives to these like the digital kind of art exhibitions but on on the other end you would kind of think that Walter Benjamin would <laughs> I don't know in my mind I can imagine him just absolutely hating hating this what are your thoughts on this kind of you know mass style projection of a culture in particular art I'm I'm actually a fan of David Hockney I wouldn't say I'm a massive fan but I've I've always had a soft spot for him and I don't live too far from where the, uh, the big exhibition is so I I, I looked at going and ironically, I, I, I thought it was a bit too expensive, to be honest. So I'm afraid I, I haven't been and, and can't tell you my personal thoughts. But I did look, I have looked through the website. Um, I think the one of the things that sort of struck me with it is the irony that it actually, one of the selling points is that it says experience David Hockney's world through his eyes. And the, 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 from a Benjaminian point of view, there's a certain irony there because the one thing, the one thing you cannot do in this exhibition is experience it through Hockney's eyes. You're looking at it through uh, a lot of screens, a lot of cameras, and a lot of technological skins are all coming together. And I suppose if, if you want to sell an exhibition as looking through David Hockney's eyes, then um, apart from uh, uh, involving David Hockney himself, the only way you can do that is perhaps the closest would be to come back to the aura and, and see the original object. So for me, there's a huge irony in the way the exhibition sold. Um, in terms of these sorts of mass exhibitions, uh, there's these sort of mass digitization exhibitions which have uh, screens on the floor and the ceiling and everywhere. Um, personally, they're a little bit of sensory overload for me. Uh, uh, I, I look at enough screens uh, in my day. I tend not to do that for fun, but I don't feel that there's any grounds for, for me anyway for saying that this is an invalid form of art. And, and we have to look back at the way photography was received, uh, I think, and I may get this wrong, so Esther uh, hopefully won't correct me, but I, th I think that that uh, even Benjamin references Baudelaire's uh, uh, discussion about a sort of a, a snobbery about photography uh, in relation to painting. Um, and so I, I think technologies will often get uh, looked down upon by the traditionalists uh, just because they can in a way and they're, they're afraid of change like a lot of us are. Um, so I actually think that there's a lot to be said for these these experiences and in a sense what's amazing about them or interesting about them is ultimately they're a kind of extension of cinema. So the in a sense we're climbing inside the screen and I find that really interesting, that notion that, that we become part of the screen, we're, we're embedded within it. And frequently when you look at these, the projections stray onto the viewers and, and, and they're scattered on beanbags and they creep up on you. Um, so I, I don't have a problem with them per se. The only thing that I get concerned about maybe is, uh, uh, is that we shouldn't 
start to sort of identify successful art as being something that that titillates necessarily or that uh, excites the senses. And I think it can be that, uh, but that's there's also got to be an important place for um, uh, art that's contemplative, that's quiet, and so forth. So. Uh, I'm not necessarily a big believer um, in bums on seats being the the, the defining uh, quality of a work, and uh, but uh, I also think at the same time that if we turn around and say uh, that something that has mass appeal is therefore bad, for me that's a really negative space to be in, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that that what's happening there is there's certain types of power structure are. Uh, they're getting concerned and they're sort of uh, ruffling their feathers when these things happen. Yeah, I I think um, I really agree with that idea that it's it's trying to produce experience um, and it is like the fairground. It's like the cinema. And these were places where modernist art and all the isms all the futurism dadaism everything you know that was avant-garde but in some sense comes to represent you know art um per se nowadays took its stimulation is from you know the very power of these mass events the circus the firework displays and so on in some sense it is a continuation of that done under conditions of Instagrammability and so on. I was in a new space in central London near Centrepoint the other day, which is these commissioned digital artworks which you enter into and these extraordinary colours kaleidoscopically transform around you and you're meant to take a photograph of yourself, put it up online and it's going to encourage people to come to London um, and, and up the tourist receipts and so on and you know one isn't necessarily snobby about that but whether it um would qualify to be the type of uh artistic experience that interested benjamin who was fascinated after all by brecht um as as someone who's producing artworks that that are immersed not really immersive but um appeal to an audience draws an audience in but draws them in to confront contradictions and you know works also on a kind of cognitive level that's kind of different or clay who fascinates benjamin because because of his sort of stripping down of the human and posing the question what is the human there's always something more abrasive I suppose in in the things that interest Benjamin and then that extends across as well to that general modernist love of Chaplin or Mickey Mouse but again because what's happening there is a a radical questioning of you know what is the minimal outline of a human in these days and how would we recognize it and what is the creature and you know how should we act how should we be in these beautiful rainbow technicolor experiences of immersion are we being asked to confront those questions or is it just something more blanketing and and comforting i suppose thinking about accessibility um of in within the world of culture you know going to I don't know, the ballet, for example, or going to an opera or even to some art exhibitions. As you mentioned yourself, the ticket price can even be off-putting. 
So thinking about the possibilities of digitizing culture in particular, digitizing art, um, what barriers could these help to break down? Um, and along with the possibilities, are there any disadvantages that you identify? So I think that the possibilities of of technologies of digitization and, and dissemination are they're huge. They're they're kind of almost limitless. And I think what we'll see is that as they go along, as things go along, they'll create other possibilities we could never have considered. So I, I I'm I think that essentially uh, what could happen is amazing. And I think if you look at, for instance, um, one thing that these technologies have thrown up, it's not so much just the the way we can spread objects, which, of course, we can now do. uh, If we digitize something, that can be spread across the world almost instantly. And we can compare objects together in ways we could never do in a physical museum. So, you, you know, you could search every collection and you could also search the personal collection so people could somehow add uh, their own objects to this sort of these massive digital museums that could be curated by individual people one day or whatever you know by personal whims but also how we experience those spaces you get uh, for instance maybe uh, the way we represent ourselves so our avatars uh, digital uh, selves in these spaces well we can strip ourselves from a number of the uh, the things like class and race gender all of these these notions can be stripped away much more easily because we're not taking the physical body into a, a virtual space for example so and i know that these these are uh, uh these ideas are they're sort of out there and in some ways they've gotten a bit broken up when they encounter reality but the the possibility of them is there i think the challenge is is not there's there's actually a lot of technology already here for for disseminating uh, art objects and working digitally in ways that are very, very exciting, very egalitarian. The problem is, as we've been mentioning before, it's the it's things like the property relations that get carried across. It's the 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 essence of who owns that technology and what are they doing with it, but also um, the society that we're living in and how we might change that. So we can liberate art and make it free for everybody to see at any time of day, and that's a beautiful idea. But if we do that, but we don't change the, uh, the the relationship of how we produce culture, so we expect the the cultural producers, the artists, to to still have jobs and make the art, and yet there's no remuneration. That's going to very quickly. We're going to end up in a difficult situation. We're going to cannibalize the art, um, and uh, I, I think that we need to to think about these things quite carefully. That we can't just we can't just expect the technology to do all the work. We need to do some work as well. There needs to be, both of these things need to change at the same time. And I think there's a good example with AI that people to talk a lot about the way AI might take a person's job. But the discussion should really be, well, the AI is going to do our job, so what are we going to do instead? What society are we going to live now we don't have to do this? And of course, Technology is always offered from the dawn of washing machines to to liberate us from drudgery, but we somehow we we are expected to go from one form of 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 labor and drudgery to another and so I think what we're being offered with digital technologies is a second chance is a bit an ability to create some incredible cultural objects that can allow everybody to engage in a much more equal way 
And we can't detach that from the fact that you need access to the screens and so forth to do that, but it's a lot more egalitarian. But we, we mustn't continue to expect of the, the, the cultural producers to play by the, the old rules. Otherwise, the whole thing's just not going to work. That was a fantastic answer. Thank you, Louis. And Esther, any thoughts? I'm fascinated by how there is a potential increase in accessibility. It's a real increase in accessibility and that I know people, unfortunately, I don't have the knowledge, but I know people who can get a download of virtually any film that has existed as long as someone else has uploaded it, you know, any book, any article, but all of this is a pirating, you know, it's, it's a kind of um, theft because of the property relations that exist. So we have the capacity digitally to have the most incredible access to so much stuff that has been written and made and visualized and so on, especially that stuff that was made reproducible itself and especially that stuff that was made digital. But there are so many gatekeepers to that. So unless you pirate and break the law or find your workarounds to get through to it, it's not there. And and this is Benjamin's point, I think, isn't it? That there's a capacity to replicate and multiply and make accessible to whoever wants it but this doesn't come into being because of questions of ownership or questions of copyright and that raises of course the very real question about artistic remuneration if we're going to have a complete liberation of information and so on and all of that has come to the fore lately around AI made art which can't just conjure things up from nowhere but has cannibalized through its training um, previous artists work and then is able to sort of learn and rehash and remash and come up with seemingly so-called original pieces but having extracted from a, a previous labor um that is now not uh, compensated um, for the artist. So it, you know, these contradictions go on and on, and that makes it interesting, interesting for people like us to speculate on, but um, uh, also quite sort of painful, you know, if you desperately want to to see something, but can't find a way to get to it, but you know that it should be or could be available to you. Our last episode, we were thinking a little bit about museological objects and, you know, restitution. And typically with the West, I mean, artworks, museological objects, everything's kind of been hoarded over in the West, right? For people to be able to have those experiences with those objects because of that reason, you know, that hasn't been there. And as we tried to, you know, make reparations and follow the path of restitution and returning objects back to their rightful places and their rightful owners, how can we maintain their aura in the West? Okay, so I think when we talk about the aura of these objects and, and uh, that are in these Western museums, 
essentially, you know, we can't extract the aura from from its its historical political narratives and its in its presence, not just physically. And say, I'm going to use the British Museum as an example. Uh, we, everything in the British Museum, uh, the British Museum says that it's, uh, I think, something like two million years of human history or some some huge extent of time that that is represented and it's this wow this incredible utopic thing but you can't actually extract the objects from the 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 sense of place that is derived from um uh the political narrative which is that uh that the british museum it's it's a space of power it's it's projecting uh, a kind of British historical view of itself as an imperial power, as a place of great importance, that these objects should be in this place because they confirm the the right of them to be there uh, through our historical kind of uh, actions. Uh, so that you could argue, perhaps, that something like the Parthenon marbles and the Benin bronzes, they're not actually standing... Uh, as objects about their culture, they're standing uh, as as objects that are British cultural power forces. And so I kind of might argue that, that do we actually need to maintain the aura at all in this instance? And so that uh, I had this kind of this sort of thought experiment, which of course, as, as an artist, I'm allowed to sort of suggest things that aren't really possible, but that perhaps we could take all of the objects in Western museums and simply remove them from display. And for a generation, we use surrogates. And during that time, we can uh, give back all the objects that people should have back, and then we can make arrangements and so forth. And we can, during that time, we can live with reproductions and see what happens and see what happens to our cultural perspectives. Because I think that uh, perhaps the, the aura maybe uh, is sometimes is restricted with an object, uh, especially when we took look at it from a Western concept. And if you look at the history of museums, they, they, their origins are not from a places of, of sharing it with everybody in the community. Um, it, it, you know, often they were uh, collections of powerful people um, to essentially show off their power and to, to, to look clever by dint of the fact that they've got these objects in their lives. And so museums' hands aren't clean. Uh, so my inclination is that, and I know that there's a, uh, and I experience it as well, this idea that when I'm wandering around the British Museum, that my my gosh, isn't this amazing that, that this object here is 3,000 year old sculpture and I can sort of feel like I, uh, maybe what, what it might have been like to stand in front of it. Um, that's human imagination. And, and I don't think that that is necessary to be in front of the original object. If I watch a film about uh, the Egyptian uh, uh, pyramids and so forth, I can still imagine that I'm there and I can still get a sense of that excitement. So my, I'm wondering whether or not we need to have those physical objects in our museums at all. Uh, and uh, I, I would be quite interested to see more uh, surrogates, more substitutions being used uh, because I, I just don't see the necessity of, of the aura in that context as being part of this. If you want to learn about two million years of human history, do I actually need the original objects? I think it's a fantastic suggestion what you said there. And imagination is such an important factor that I think is often overlooked in this debate. And just I think if we rework this and we continue to, you know, digitize, then people would then become normalized with that and, you know, feel that they don't have to see the physical presence of the object. I think it's just a bit of reworking how we think about it, right? And a bit of experience there. And Esther, what do you think on the topic? 
I think it is really interesting to imagine what would happen if if we had what could now be amazing 3D, you know, digitized renditions of things using photogrammetry and all the things we can do. I mean, we've lived with copies before. I think in in the V&A, sculpture students would sketch copies of uh, Greek and Roman art and so on, and that's um, still given them a certain kind of encounter. I I find it interesting that in some of the contemporary restitution debates, people do draw on Walter Benjamin and on the artwork essay and talk about the object that, um, what's important about the object that has been looted and should be returned is its embedded history that that it's um that it somehow contains that history from and that place from which it has been ripped and and therefore you know there is a, a strong argument for it to return because it, it it has absorbed something that it can then exude again once it is back in the place of being and and I suppose though that does make me wonder in this thought experiment whether if Picasso had stood knowingly in front of African or Iberian masks in an anthropological exhibition, would he have painted his Demoiselle d'Avignon if he had stood unknowingly before them, not realised they were copies, would he have painted them? Or was it necessary for him to to be in front of those particular objects because of that erratic exuding that is somehow communicated? Um, and I, I guess, you know, we can't find that out, but I'd, I'd be interested to undergo this experiment and see what did happen to us socially under those different conditions. Thanks for listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast, a production of the Goethe Institute London. Special thanks to our guests on today's episode, Esther Leslie and Louis Porter. The Goethe Institute is a cultural institute of Germany. We foster international cultural exchange and enable cultural involvement in over 100 countries worldwide. In London, we offer German language courses, cultural programmes, events, literature and much more, both in our institute on Exhibition Road and online. You can find out more on our website at goethe.de forward slash London. I've been your host and producer for this episode, Lucy Rowan.